Our Lord, how grateful we are to you that you would do this for us, that you would show us who you are through your word, that we can know who you are. You are the creator of the world. You are so beyond us. In one way, you are so incomprehensible, and yet you have made, us, made yourself known to us through your word. And so we really are grateful that you would do that for us. And we're especially grateful that you have made, us, made yourself known to us through your son. It is through Jesus that we are able to fully know who you are. And so we are grateful for him. And I pray, God, even as we look to your word this morning, that we would make much of him, that we would draw nearer to you through him, that he would teach us all that we need to know, and that we would, in fact, live our lives in accordance to what you have said in your word. We can't do that on our own. We can't accomplish that work. So I pray and I ask, my Lord, that you would do that for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So my wife and I, uh, this October, will be celebrating 10 years of marriage life together. Now, I don't want to brag, <clears throat> but some people would call me probably the most romantic person on this planet. And, and the thing is that it's always been that way, right? Uh, like, for, take, for example, how I proposed to her. Now, if you're here and you're single, I would say you should take copious notes. This could really come in handy one day. Uh, if you're here and you're married, I would say you should probably already start repenting for your lack of love for your wife and for your lack of creativity and what you did for her. But this is what I did. I put together a scavenger hunt, right? I put together a scavenger hunt and I put it all over Philadelphia at, at locations that were really meaningful for us, use, using clues that were really important and that, that Sharon would understand. And clue by clue, it would sort of lead us to this final spot, right? And at that final spot, I whipped out a guitar, and I sang a song that I had written specifically for her. This is all true, by the way. I'm not making any of this up. I sang to her a song that I had specifically written for her. I had candles all over the place and, and flower patterns everywhere you can see. And then I pulled out the ring and popped the question. Of course, she said yes. Right after that, how could you say no? Right? Said yes. I mean, I get just a little bit just thinking about it right now, how amazing that moment was, what I came up with. Now, here's the thing, right? You don't have to be the king of romance to know that the point of a scavenger hunt is to hide things in order that they would be discovered, right? That's obvious. I didn't hide clues that day hoping that Sharon would actually never find them. Or, or I didn't up with things that I would write down or things that I would say, hoping that I would actually never understand what it is that I'm trying to communicate to her. No, I hid in order that it would be found, and I spoke or I wrote in order that she would understand. Because that's the point of a scavenger hunt, right? It's to reveal something that was previously hidden. Now the question is, why do I mention that? Because you see, the passage that we're looking at this morning together Jesus is actually trying to make this same exact point. So we're looking at Mark chapter 4, starting at verse 21. If you have a Bible in front of you, you can pull it out. It's at page 839. So you can read with me. This is what Jesus says. And he, that's Jesus, said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? 
For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. You see, Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people at this point. And now, if you've been with us, you know that there has been these crowds that are following him. It's this group that he is speaking to. And in verse 21, it's almost like he's making this painfully obvious point, right? He says, no one takes a lamp and puts it under a basket or under the bed. Now, that's, a, that's an obvious point, right? Think about it. I mean, no one went to Ikea sort of saw the, the display of lamps that are sitting there and just thought, you know, that lamp would be perfect under my bed, right? That would be the perfect lamp to be set under my bed. No, no, we buy lamps to put it on tables, or we buy lamps to put it on lampstands. We buy lamps so that the, the light from the lamp would actually illuminate the room. Th that's the point, right? That's obvious. Well, what does any of that have to do with anything? Well, you see, the lamp that's being described here is actually Jesus himself. In fact, a more literal translation of verse 21, it would be this. It would say, does the lamp come to be put? Does the lamp come to be put? Now, notice the, the definite article, the word the, right? So it seems like there is a specific or a particular lamp that we're speaking about here, not just some sort of general lamp, a statement about lamps in general. And notice also that it says, come to be put. Now, since lamps don't walk, right, we would say that this, this is probably talking about a person more than describing an object. And so scholars, what they believe is that verse 21 is describing a person, namely, that is describing Jesus. That you see, Jesus is the lamp. Jesus is the lamp of God. Jesus is indeed the light of the world, as it would say later on in the Gospels. And so what's the point? This is the point. That Jesus came to earth in order to reveal things that were hidden. Jesus came to earth in order to reveal things that were hidden. He came to shed light on things that are currently a secret. Because look at what he says in verse 22. He says, For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. You see, the, the light of the world came to earth to reveal hidden things and secret things to the entire world so that one day nothing will remain hidden. Now, as you hear that, I think the obvious question that you should be asking yourself is this, Right? What are these hidden or secret things that we're talking about? What are these things that we're discussing here? Now, if you were here last week, you know that we studied together uh, the previous section, and it sort of gives us a little clue. So if you have your Bible, kind of go, uh, go backward a little bit to verse 11 and look at what Jesus says. He said, And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Now, what does that even mean? 
Now, if you've been with us for the last several months as we're studying through Mark, you know that from day one of Jesus' ministry, the kingdom of God has been this, this regular thing that Jesus is discussing. From the first thing that he almost speaks out of his mouth is discussing the kingdom of God. And it comes up over and over again, and you'll hear a lot about it as we keep going as well. And so the question is, what is this kingdom, and what's the secret concerning the kingdom? Well, you see, the scripture says this. The scripture says that God created the world, and that he actually rules over the world. He is the ruler of it. But you see, all you have to do is turn on action news for five minutes, or take a look at your neighborhood, or maybe take a look in the mirror to know that not everyone acknowledges God as the ruler. They, they don't submit to the rule and reign of God. They don't submit to the authority of God. No, instead, people, uh, they kind of live how they want, and they do what they please. They, they have no regard for the creator of the world, the ruler of this world. And the truth is that it's been this way ever since the beginning, right? Ever since Adam and Eve uh, rejected God's authority in the garden. And ever since then, right, the story of humanity has been filled with sin and suffering and death. Literally, a few pages of your Bible, into your Bible, the story of humanity would be filled with sin and suffering and death. Well, you see, that's where the kingdom comes in. You see, the story of humanity is not meant to be this endless cycle of, of sin and suffering and death. It's not meant to be this, this never-ending circle. This is all we're going to see for the rest of our lives. No, instead, the story of humanity is actually linear, right? It, it has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end. So what that means is this. God is not sitting sort of on the sideline, kind of scratching his head, trying to figure out what am I going to do with all of this mess that has been here since the beginning? No, instead, he knows exactly what he's going to do. He's going to bring to an end all the destruction that has existed since the beginning. He's going to bring to an end sin and suffering and death that has existed since the beginning. And it will come through the establishment of God's kingdom. It will come through the breaking in of the rule and reign of God on earth. And here's the wonderful secret that we're talking about. That when Jesus came to earth, he came to inaugurate that kingdom. He came to usher in that kingdom. He came to, to propel and to start this process of dealing with sin and death and suffering. He came to end it. Now, if you're tracking with me, when you hear that, your heart should say, that's great news. That's good news. Because let me ask you, who wants to live with sin and suffering and death? Everyone, all of us, we spend our entire lives trying to escape this. And so when you hear someone has come to bring an end to that, our hearts should get excited about that. But what's puzzling is this, that time and time again, as we read Mark's gospel, it seems like people are less than thrilled to meet Jesus. 
you know, one of my favorite movies of all time, I would say bet uh, between one and two, I kind of go back and forth, but I would say one of my favorite movies of all time is The Dark Knight, right? All of you should have seen it by now. If not, again, another thing you should repent of. But Dark Knight is a great movie, right? And so one of the first scenes of the movie, you see this drug deal that's about to happen, right? So there's this parking garage, and a bunch of cars drive into the parking garage, and all of a sudden you see people getting out of the car and uh, dogs jumping out of the car, and, and you just see this, and you see there's bad guys all over the place. Something's about to go down. Things are not looking good. And so as the scene is sort of unfolding, you're watching this happen, and you're sort of getting excited because you know that Batman is about to come into the scene, right? You just know this is not going to end up just a scene of a drug deal. Something's going to happen. And so the moment that he does come in, it's magnificent, right? The tumbler. The tumbler is the Bat Batmobile, right? So the tumbler sort of crashes into the scene, and it makes a mess of all the parking garage, and, and it kind of crashes into the cars, and it, and it comes into the scene, and the door opens, and you see Batman step out. Now, Batman is standing there, and he has his full gear on, and he is looking intimidating, and he goes right to work, right? He starts fighting bad guys. He bends the barrel of guns, right? He comes in, and he saves the day just like how you would expect a superhero to do. Now, imagine that same scenario happens. Let's rewind for a second. Imagine that same scenario happens, and Tumblr crashes into the screen, but when Batman steps out, he sort of looks like me, right? Receding hairline, right? A little chunky right around here. I've been trying really hard. I just don't know what to do, right? Uh, the patella is sort of popping out every once in a while. I just don't know how to keep it in. Uh, it, it, to be honest, I'll be a little scared of guns, right? I don't know that I would actually bend the barrel of a gun if I did see it. Right? Not exactly what you would expect, right? Well, see, that's sort of how people perceived Jesus as well. Not exactly what they were expecting. You see, those crowds that came to listen to Jesus, they were listening. And they, too, hated the sin and the suffering and the death that they saw in this world. And they, too, just like us, wanted it to come to an end. But they had their own ideas on how that would happen. You see, the Israelites were expecting this Messiah to come. And the, the Messiah, he would be this amazing king. You see, they've been reading about a king like that in the Old Testament, a king named David, who was a, a powerful leader and a political ruler. I, I guess they would imagine that he sort of rode in on a horse with a, an entire army around him, right? who would come in and end the oppression of this Roman government that's taking over their lives, and who would bring justice and, and return prosperity to the people. But instead, standing before them was Jesus. And Jesus hardly fit the bill of the Messiah that they were expecting. He, he didn't seem powerful. In fact, the, the scriptures describe him as being homeless. Jesus was homeless. He didn't have a, a place to lay down his head. And he didn't seem political. He had no army behind him, no horse that he, ride, he would ride in on. Instead, he had 12 ordinary guys. Some of them were fishermen. He didn't even seem liked, right? Consider, we just read 
before this that the, the religious leaders, they were plotting to figure out how they would kill him. They wanted to destroy him. And forget the religious leaders, even his family thought that he was crazy. They thought he was out of his mind. And what we're supposed to believe here is that this guy is supposed to come and establish God's kingdom? Well, Jesus is saying, absolutely. Absolutely. I came to establish the kingdom of God, and I want to tell you everything about it. I want to shed light on what this kingdom is like, but I need you to hear this. It's not at all what you're expecting, but it's exactly what you're looking for. The kingdom of God is not at all what you're expecting, but it's exactly what you're looking for. And so Jesus says in verse 23, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. What is he saying there? He's saying, listen, if you want to really know what the kingdom is like, I'm going to tell you, but you need to listen closely, right? You need to carefully consider what is being said because the very thing that you've been looking for is going to be described to you, so I need you to understand. You know, last week we learned that Jesus tends to use parables, right, when he's describing what the kingdom is like. So what's a parable? It's a way of describing something by comparing it to something else, right? So we'll say this here is like that there, and so by describing that, we get a better picture of what this is. Does that make sense? This here is like this, and that here is that like that. So when, by describing that, we get a better picture of this, right? And so parables came in all sorts of forms. It came in, it came in stories or, or proverbs, even riddles. And the purpose of a parable was to reveal something that was previously hidden. It, it was to make known something that was previously unknown. But what we realized last week was this, right? That when the same parable was spoken, when a parable was spoken, it could actually yield to two different results depending on who's listening to it. One parable spoken leading to two different results depending on who hears it. You see, for some, the parable would reveal truth, and they would understand things that they didn't understand before. But for others, it would actually keep truth hidden, and they wouldn't understand what is trying to be said. It all depended on the listener. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Look at verse 24 and 25. He said, and he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to, for to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. You know, in one sense, all that Jesus is saying here is sort of a cliche that we've probably heard before. It's this idea that you get out of it what you... Can I hear that? You get out of it what you what? Put into it, right? It's that idea here. So Jesus is saying, listen... I'm, ex I'm about to explain what the kingdom is like. Now, don't just listen. Carefully consider what I'm about to say because if you listen closely and believe what I have to say about the kingdom, even more will be revealed to you, right? You'll be given even more understanding of what this kingdom is like. But if you refuse to listen and you just stick with your own idea of what the Messiah is supposed to be like and what the kingdom is supposed to be like, then at the end of the day, you'll be left with nothing right? Even what was given to you will be taken away. 
In other words, you get out of it what you put into it. So you should carefully consider. And so what does Jesus want us to know about the kingdom? As we study through Mark, there's going to be a lot that Jesus teaches us about the kingdom. But here, there's just two insights that we want to learn from two parables. Two insights from two parables, right? And so the first parable, the first point, this is what Jesus wants us to know. That you will be surprised how God's kingdom grows. You'll be surprised how God's kingdom grows. And then the second parable, the second point would be, you'll be surprised how big God's kingdom grows. First point, you'll be surprised how God's kingdom grows. The second point is, you'll be surprised how big God's kingdom grows. So the first parable, he says this in verse 26. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. You see, this is a, a parable that we actually only read in Mark's gospel. This is only recorded in Mark's gospel. And it's a fairly straightforward story, right? This is the gist of the story. A, a man scatters seed, right? The seed grows, and then the harvest comes. That's sort of the, the gist of the story. There's nothing extraordinary about this parable. It's sort of a fairly normal thing. Now, none of us here are probably farmers, right? And so we probably don't have much experience with farming. But even as we read this, we have an idea of what he's talking about. Now, you know, when we try to study parables, parables in general, one good rule for us to follow and, and try to use is in trying to figure out what a parable is talking about is to try to figure out what is being overly or unnecessarily emphasized in this parable, right? When you read a parable, you should say, what's being overly or unnecessarily emphasized in this parable? Anything that's being repeated or stressed in a parable. And so when you do that, when you pick apart this parable, you realize this, that this is sort of the idea, right? That the germinating power to grow is found in the seed and not in the farmer. The germinating power to grow is found in the seed and not in the farmer. Take a look at what we're talking about, right? It says the man scatters seed on the ground. And look at verse 27. It says, he, the farmer, sleeps and rises night and day. So he scatters seed on the ground, and then what does he do? He goes to sleep, and he rises, and he does that day after day. Scatters seed, goes to sleep. That's it, right? Or look at the latter half of verse 27. It says, the seed sprouts and grows. He, the farmer, knows not how. So not only that, so he spreads seed. He goes to sleep. He gets back up again. He goes to sleep, gets back up again, goes to sleep, gets back up again. And in some time, the seed will begin to grow. And when it does grow, it says basically, he can't explain how that happened. He does not know how it happens. Or look at verse 28. It says, the earth produces by itself. The earth produces by itself. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, but Greek scholars say that that word, that phrase there, by itself, is actually the word automate. And you can hear it, right? What English word do we get from that? Automatic, right? Automatically. And so what, what 
uh, Jesus is saying here is this. The seed is put on the ground. It, it, it starts to grow, and it seems like it just, the earth produces this automatically. This idea is apart from any involvement of the farmer. The earth is doing this work, not the farmer. And so you can hear it over and over again in a bunch of different ways, the fact that this seed is doing stuff apart from the far, farmer's involvement or work. Does that make sense? Now, listen, I'm not, I'm not a farmer, but I can attest to this, right? Uh, the closest thing that I've ever gotten to growing anything was my lawn when we moved into our house about eight years ago. I walked into that house, and Sharon can tell you as well. We walked in, and our backyard was the most ugly thing you've ever seen in your life. It was horrible. I mean, there, was, there were bare spots all over the place. There were uh, that uh, crabgrass, I think they call it, right? Crabgrass growing all over the place. It was just nasty. Uh, there was weeds all over the place. And so I saw this, and I was like, we got to do something, because we want this to be a nice backyard. we got to do something. So what did I do? We went to Lowe's, right? And I bought a, a bag of that weed and feed stuff, right? So I went and got that, and I brought it home, and I got a spreader, because I never had a spreader before, so I got a spreader, and I went to town, right? I went to my backyard, and I just started spreading seed all over the place, all, I mean, like, literally, you can hardly see anything else, because all you see now on the ground was seed. I scattered it everywhere. And do you know what? A few weeks later, grass started to grow, I was surprised by it, but grass started to grow, right? Beautiful green grass. Now, do you know what I didn't do? I didn't get really down low to the ground and, and microscopically uh, pick out every piece of seed and then open it up and maybe pull out a, a strand of the grass and then put it back together again and put it back into the ground. I didn't do that, right? Instead, what did I do? I, I spread the seed and then I went to sleep. And I woke up and went back to sleep again and woke up and went back to sleep again and woke up and went back to sleep again. And three weeks later, grass started to grow, right? And here's another thing. I couldn't tell you how it happened. I'm no botanist, and so I couldn't explain the science of what happened there. I just know that it did. I mean, it really does seem like the earth produced this grass on its own. It produced it automatically. And all I did was sort of get the process going by spreading the seed. Now you hear all of this and you have to say, what in the world does this have to do with the kingdom of God? Right? Why are we talking about scattering seed? Well, Jesus is saying that the growth of the kingdom the adding of men and women and children as citizens of the kingdom, where they will recognize and submit to the rule and reign of God, where they will ultimately escape the power and the presence of sin and suffering and death. Well, all of that doesn't happen through military force. It doesn't happen through weapons or money or power, as the Israelites would have imagined. No, it happens simply by spreading seed. It happens simply by spreading seed. What are we talking about? Now, again, if you go back to verse 13, right, of Mark 4, we realized last week that when we talk about seed, we're actually talking about the word of God. We're talking about the truth of the gospel. In other words, this is literally Jesus' game plan. This is God's game plan, right? Jesus, this Messiah, who the, the, the world has been waiting for, right, he would come. 
and he would do a bunch of teaching, and he would heal a bunch of people, and he would cast out a bunch of demons, and then surprisingly, three years into his ministry, he would die. And then surprisingly again, three days later, he would rise again. And then this would be the plan for the growing of God's kingdom. Are you ready? Jesus' dozen followers or so, after he resurrects, would be left with a story. A story about their leader. And through the telling of that story, and through the retelling of that story, seed will literally begin to spread. Right? In fact, it says that some of them will even die for telling that story. Just the speaking of that story will cause some of them to be put to death. But in due time, the kingdom of God will start to grow all through a seed or through a story. Let me ask you. Let's be honest with each other, right? We're in a closed room. We can be honest with each other. Doesn't that sound like the most absurd thing in the world? We're talking about the ending of sin and suffering and death, and the game plan is to tell a story? That's what they came up with? I mean, imagine for a moment, right, that you're meeting with city officials for Philadelphia, and you're sitting down at a table, maybe down at City Hall or something like that, and you're, you're talking to leaders, and you're trying to come up with a plan of how it is that you're going to deal with the brokenness that you see in this city, because we see brokenness in the city in many ways all the time. What kind of ideas do you think people would come up with in trying to deal with the brokenness that we see? Maybe some people will say, you know what, what we need is a greater police presence, right? We need to flood these streets with, with authorities so that they could keep watch of what's going on. Or maybe somebody else will say, you know what, what we need to do is uh, fund education. Because a lot of this is stemming from the fact that people are not being educated and so they need to be taught how to live. Or maybe somebody else will say, you know what, no. The, the, the solution is to fight against drugs, right? Because drugs is what's causing all the stuff that we're seeing. So we need to figure out how can we eliminate drugs. Well, imagine that someone is sitting at that table and they say, hey, I have an idea. What if we just go around and tell everybody in Philadelphia a story? <laughs> right? We just kind of go door to door and knock on their door and tell them a story, a story about Jesus and, and what he did for us. What do you think the response would be? I think some people would be confused, like, what in the world? What are you talking about? Are you okay? Right? I imagine there'll be some who would be laughing, ridiculing this person who mentioned this idea. I imagine some would even be angry. But you see, that's exactly the plan that God came up with, not just for Philadelphia, but for the entire world. The redemption of the world, the growth of the kingdom of God would happen through a story, through the story of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that was not at all what the Jews were expecting. Think about it, right? The saving of the world was going to be through the telling of a story. And that was not just going to be true for them. It would still be true for us now. And so the question is, how does this parable actually affect our lives now? I think it does in a bunch of ways, but Two th quick things. If that's true, if God's plan for the redemption of the world to save us from sin and suffering and death was to tell a story, then what we need to do, we need to take God's word more seriously. Listen to Paul in Romans 1.16. 
Right? This is what he says. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation. You see, this morning we need to be reminded of the power that exists in the gospel. Brothers and sisters, the story of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ really does change people's lives. Do you know that? Do you believe that? You see, some of us sitting here this morning are examples of that. We're not who we once were because of the power of the gospel. Our souls have been saved by the gospel. Some of our marriages have been saved by the gospel. Some of us have been saved from addictions by the power of the gospel. And if that's true, then we should be liberally and generously and intentionally spreading that gospel all over our own hearts and the hearts of people all over our neighborhood and the city and all over the world because it literally changes things, right? It literally is what the world is looking for even though it is not what they're expecting. Do you hear that? The gospel is exactly what the world is looking for even though it's not what they're expecting. The hope of the world is found in Jesus and his gospel. The gospel is literally powerful enough to change the world. Do you believe that? Because if that's true, I think something else can also be true. If we should take God's word more seriously, then we should also take ourselves less seriously. What do I mean by that? What if we trusted that God's word, rather than yourself, is the power for mission? Right? I think sometimes we get so intimidated by this thought of mission. Like, like what will I say? How will I form those words? What, what if they don't agree? Or what if I don't know how to respond when they ask me a question? What will I do? Listen, I, I completely get that. I went, to, I went to seminary, and I still am intimidated by the thought of sharing the gospel with someone. But maybe it's because I and maybe you Maybe we're giving ourselves too much credit. Because you see, the word is the power for salvation, not us. The word, the seed, is the power for salvation, not us. And so what that means is that just like I spread seed in my backyard and went to sleep, I can literally spread the seed of the gospel and go to to sleep. Right? The seed itself is powerful enough to get things done. And as we learned last week, when that seed lands on fertile ground, then we can confidently look forward to what it says in verse 29. It says this, But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. You see, we simply spread the seed of the gospel, and if it lands on fertile soil, the harvest will come. So we need to trust more in the power of the seed than in your own power. First parable, first point. You'll be surprised how God's kingdom grows. Let's take a look at the second parable, the second point. You'll be surprised how big God's kingdom grows. And this point is much quicker. Look at verse 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? With what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. 
Yet when, it's so, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. You see, what this parable is trying to do is provide a contrast for us. Jesus says, consider the, the mustard seed. He says, it's the smallest seed of all the earth. Now, if you're a botanist here, you might be saying, wait a minute, that's not the smallest seed. That's my, that's my nerdy botanist voice, by the way. <laughs> you might say, you know, that's not the smallest seed in all the earth, and you'll be right. But you see, Jesus here isn't ultimately trying to make a botanical statement, right? What he's trying to do is illustrate something through a contrast. You see, for Jews, they would proverbially understand the mustard seed as being this really tiny seed, maybe even the tiniest of seeds. It's, it's small. But the amazing thing is that this tiny seed ends up growing into a 10-foot high shrub. This tiny little seed ends up growing high enough where it's going to be a 10-foot high shrub. It's amazing what this seed starts off as and then what it becomes. And you see, that's exactly what the point that Jesus is trying to make here. You know, maybe he's talking to his disciples and he's preparing them for what is to come. Maybe he's saying, listen, in a few years, after my death and my resurrection and my ascension into heaven, you'll look around and there will be 11 of you. And you'll say, this is ridiculous, right? How are we supposed to accomplish anything? How are we supposed to do this thing? And Jesus, Jesus is saying, listen, you'll be surprised how big God's kingdom will grow. Brothers and sisters, would you take a moment to consider how big God's kingdom has grown? You see, in Jerusalem in AD 30, Jesus died on the cross. He was buried, he was resurrected, and he ascended into heaven. And it says that 50 days later, the Holy Spirit falls on the apostles, and this process of growth begins. In AD 42, Mark would bring the gospel to Egypt. In AD 49, Paul would travel to Turkey and then to Greece. In AD 52, Thomas would bring the gospel to India. In AD 174, the first Christians were reported in modern-day Austria. By AD 280, the first group of churches would emerge in Italy. In AD 350, nearly 32 million, 32 million Christians would inhabit the Roman Empire. In AD 432, St. Patrick would spread the seed of the gospel to Ireland. In AD 635, the first Christian missionaries would arrive in China. In AD 900, missionaries would first step foot in Nor Nor Norway. By, 19, um, by 1498, Kenya's first Christians were baptized. In, in 1555 to 1562, 2,000 2, churches would be planted in France. By, nine, um, by 1740, on the heels of the Great Awakening, it was said that 80% of Americans were attending church by 1740. In 1890, Charles Spurgeon helped plant 200 churches, 200 churches in Great Britain. And he would also send missionaries to Australia and to South Africa and the Americas. And in eight, 1985, after 
25 years of missionary work in South Korea, Christians in South Korea would grow to over 6.5 million. And on it goes and goes and goes. And Jesus is saying, do you know what the kingdom is like? He's saying it's like a mustard seed, right? Starts off with 11 people, microscopic, and it grows to become huge. In fact, look at verse 32. He says, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. You see, scholars disagree on what this birds of the air comment is referring to, but sometimes in the Old Testament, this, this imagery alludes to the fact that Gentiles will be included in the kingdom of God. Now, whether or not that's exactly what verse 32 is speaking of, we don't know, but the idea is absolutely true. You see, God's kingdom, as it continues to grow, will one day include all the people of the world. What started off with 11 people, consider that. 11 people in a particular piece of land will include all the people of all the lands. Listen to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. It says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, what started as a mustard seed some 2,000 years ago will become the most significant and powerful kingdom since the beginning of time. And here's the wonderful news. We get a chance to be a part of that through the spreading of seed. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, what do you do with any of this? I think the answer can be found in verses 33 and 34. Look at what it says. It says, with many such parables, he spoke, to the he spoke the word to them. And as they were able to hear it, he did not speak to them without a parable. But privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. You see, Jesus spoke many parables. And through it, he explained amazing truths concerning the kingdom. Now, whether those truths and those parables will change your life or not will be dependent on your ability and your willingness to hear it. It will be dependent as, as you hear these things, whether or not you will press in and carefully consider what is being said or whether you will reject what Jesus has to say because you have your own ideas of how to deal with sin and suffering and death in this world. Because if you do have ears to hear, Jesus is inviting you to be a disciple. He, he, he's willing and he's able to explain everything to you. So he's inviting you to press in and understand the kingdom of God. But if you reject Jesus, even what you heard, even what you heard this morning will be taken from you. And so my prayer is that all of us this morning would press into Jesus to carefully consider what he has revealed to us through these parables, that we would trust in him, that we would believe in him, because in doing so, we can't help but be changed by the powerful, world-transforming 
work of the gospel. Let's pray.